doing things together can sometimes create the courage that's necessary. We don't have to always shoulder it on our own. I am super pumped for today. And we got, and by the way, Chris, just so everybody knows, I can say this confidently that you and I have a relationship and I use that word thoughtfully because I do think it's a relationship. And yet almost every interaction that you and I have had has been through LinkedIn, right? This is the first time you and I have ever had a yeah. real live, I'm air quoting, conversation. Do you? It, it, would you agree by this? Yeah, what? yeah, it is. I do. I, I do feel like uh, we're, we're kindred spirits, but it's it's a combination of watching your stuff and uh, and following you, and you putting your heart sort of on your sleeve, and the way that you communicate and what you talk about makes it very easy to feel like I not only know you, but that I agree with the you know the majority of what you're talking about. But I feel the same way about you. But but I think for the the listener, well, first of all, how could we not get along when you're inspired? And this is on your bio, right? But people who display great courage in the face of adversity. If you've gone to your website, you'll you'll see that. And you are, I mean, you're juggling a lot of stuff. So I I love how social media has brought us together. If I bumble some things, this is for the listener. It's because Chris and I are meeting for the first time right now on the show. So, for example, is it Chris Neeland? Yes. Okay. Versus what? What was the other alternative? I don't know. Maybe it was like <laughs> Kenny Land. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a silent K, yes. Right. Uh, and Chris, you know, you, you're, you've got – you're the co-founder of Cult Collective. You've got Communo. And you've got this epic conference that you were, you were kind enough – to let me speak at called The Gathering, which is usually held up in Banff in Alberta this past year. Like everybody else, you kind of made the most of the situation. I I know I had to sort of trek up to the Ace Hotel um, and met some amazing people that I know we're gonna we're gonna talk about there. But let's start with, if you don't mind, like again, let's go back to how cool is it that we know each other from social media? I think social media gets a bad rap and make no bones about it. LinkedIn is a social media platform for professionals. Uh, is, is that how you see it as well? Or do you see it differently? No, I, I, LinkedIn is my preferred platform of choice for business relationships. I, I have created, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old, so I'm still a Facebook guy and I have all my friends and family on Facebook and I have business associates, clients, prospects, and uh, followers on uh, LinkedIn. And I love it. I mean, I think that you and I are a LinkedIn success story. And I unfortunately think that you and I are also the exception. Um, You know, we've known each other for over a year now. I think we reached out to you to sort of give, not just get in terms of, hey, we should get you on a stage. You have a message. We have a platform. Let's do something together. You know, the, the number of unsolicited, instantly transactional sort of solicitations I get almost makes it unbearable. Certainly the the email portion of LinkedIn is my least favorite part. 
But I have found that the content portion is really, really rich. And, and I think that you are somebody that just is constantly giving value, you know, post after post after post, you're sharing stuff. It's not firewalled. It's not behind a gated community. It allows me to become a better person. And like I said, it allows me to get to know you, not just as a professional or as a thought leader, but I get little insights into who you are as a person. And it just makes it really uh, human and enjoyable. Yeah. You know, I, in- just on that. And first of all, thank you for saying that, but like, there's nothing devious about it for me. It's like the way you add value is by putting out content in the world that mirrors your values. And I think that's also why this works. Like I I've seen enough stuff from you that I'm like, okay, this guy is like, he gets it. He's, he's sharing the love in all directions and you're passionate about very specific things as well. And when you're juggling as much as you're juggling, why don't we take a step back? Why don't, just because I don't want to do a disservice on this. Can you kind of articulate your role and all the different entities that you're involved in? Uh, sure. We'll do them chronologically. So, you know, we started, Ryan Gill, my business partner, and I started Cult almost 10 years ago. Um, it was a, um, a, a, a overt transition away from being a traditional advertising agency. I I like to say we grew a conscience, but we just got very tired of taking our clients' money to satisfy a brief that we knew in our hearts was not going to solve the problem. Um, And so we started what we called at the time a new species of agency, an engagement agency that deprioritized media and uh, marketing campaign, advertising campaigns, and and elevated the craft of marketing to what it should have been, used to be, and could be, but doesn't seem to be as prevalent today. Um, Along that journey, um, we had discovered that what one of the things that um, I think our desired clients needed was role models. They, they were, you know, you take the Cannes Film Festival as an example, just to both name names and drop, you know, throw people under the bus. That's just a horrible forum for business leaders to say that's what good looks like. That's what great creativity looks like, but that's not what great business performance looks like. That's not what great campaigns look like. And I think they, they misinterpret fun, sexy, exciting, clever for effective, productive, worthwhile. And so um, we said we need new role models. And we landed on this idea of cults and cult brands as sort of our muse. And we said, listen, nobody's going to believe us because we're not unbiased in this. It's self-serving. I want people to be inspired by cult brands so that we can teach them how to do it. So it couldn't be, you know, me on the stage. It had to be the leaders themselves telling their stories because what does the head of Marvel care if anybody does what they do or the head of Netflix or the LA Lakers, right? They were up there in a completely objective way, just sharing out of the generosity and kindness of their hearts. So that, that became the gathering. And that just I refer to it as a crowdsourced uh, event. Everybody that's participated, not everybody, but the way that it has grown is people whom have participated said, I want to come back and do something extra, extra, whether it's funding, whether it's activations, whether it's bringing more people, whether it's dialing up the, the um, credibility of how these brands are selected. Like uh, an army of people have come around and helped make the gathering as awesome as it is. And it's now in its ninth year. And then um, one of the things that we've learned as we got to know businesses and who were trying to be better at what they were doing was there was, uh, we call it the operating system, the, the way that marketing and merchandising and operations was working together was dysfunctional. And um, 
there was maybe a whole new way to think about uh, accessing subject matter expertise, uh, leveraging third parties like agency providers, and uh, Communo became really just an operating system that act, that allowed brands to tap into better talent, most often on a contingent basis, uh, so that they could reap the benefits of those skill sets without burdening their P&Ls or their overhead with hiring, you know, having to hire and retain uh, all that top talent. We didn't know when we launched Communo that the pandemic was going to make remote work and freelancing and, and reimagining labor models. You know, that's been a huge wind in our sails, but you know, that was a trend that we saw four or five years ago within the marketing space. And now it seems to be just be how businesses are thinking about labor across the board. So those are the three businesses that we, uh, that I'm associated with and I have different responsibilities within each, but they're all sort of connected around this idea of helping brands become better. Yeah, if there was like a pie chart of your time <laughs> when it comes to the three, how, yeah. how would you break it out? Uh, 80% the uh, cult. Uh, that is our, that, you know, doing those advisory services is, is uh, what kind of um, gets me out of bed in the morning. The gathering was a huge percentage, but like I said, now there's, there's a team that's kind of running it and it's kind of got a life of its own. So I, my favorite job actually of all three of those is the six months that I get to spend evaluating the nominated brands and sort of just being a, a scientist that gets to look under the hood and see what makes them tick. So that's my job now with the gathering uh, in terms of the event and the production and the tickets and the sponsorship, other people take care of that now. And then with Communo, Communo got so big so fast that my business partner, Ryan, who started uh, Cult with me, we divided and conquered. So he now runs Communo. I run cult and we get together every couple of weeks and, and compare notes. I mean, I, I've loved everyone I've met from the team. I love Ryan. I know he was looking at San Diego for a while too. I'm hoping to get him back down here. Stephanie uh, Peterson. Wait, Stephanie, am I getting that right? Thompson. Thompson. Stephanie Thompson. Stephanie Peterson. She's uh she runs uh, internal communications at Kraft Heinz, if you need a speaker, by the way. But Stephanie Thompson, she's, I love her. I, we had like, it was such an easy conversation. Um, and then Brad, I right, met Brad on stage down there. Just, you, you do a really good job of like having people that know who they are. And I think that's, I think that's part of it. Like there's so many people in this business who just don't know who they are. And like, isn't that sort of ironic that, people pay us money to help them figure out how to get clear. And yet so many people are cloudy. Uh, and I haven't seen that from the hires I've met across your brands. And, you know, I, I know it's not just, you know, it's all you guys, but it's just cool to see that like you guys are clear in who you are. You're not afraid to be that person. It's just awesome to see. And Chris, I, before you comment on that, I, I got a question on you. So I saw that you, started at BYU, went to college at BYU. Are you, are you, are you LDS? Are you Mormon? I am. Yeah. All right. And in fact, so. I, for the first, uh, we just moved from Canada uh, two months ago and have come back to the, the Holy land, if you will. I'm actually now living just South of Salt Lake city. All right. So I spent like, while most of my friends in high school were finding whoever's parents were out of town house, you know, I was in a, in a church playing basketball with my, with my closest buddies. Yeah, no, that's actually really common. Uh, most of our meeting houses have um, 
big cultural halls that have basketball. Uh, but for whatever reason, basketball has become a very cultural thing in the LDS community. And um, I'm actually excited. Tomorrow night, BYU basketball season kicks off. And I'm, I'm staying at a home right across the street from Marriott Center. This, for, for many, many decades, it was the largest basketball arena in college sports built by the Marriott family from Marriott Hotels. And um, uh, it, it is you know, from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., you will find teenagers breaking into the meeting houses and, and playing church ball. And it's a fantastic way to kind of have some good, clean, wholesome fun. I mean, my debauchery probably started in college, but in high school, you know, there was nowhere else I wanted to be. My best friend who was LDS, we were in a church. We were we were we were shooting up bricks, doing what we could to play the game. But but maybe that, you know, maybe I shouldn't be then surprised that a, a culture that's built off of you're going to go on a mission and you're going to go serve, that here you are with a higher purpose and a higher mission. Well, it's funny. When I, when I started Cult, um, there was a lot of debate about that name. The, the, the philosophy of it, create raving fans, focus more on advocacy than on advertising, that was all baked. But when Ryan, my business partner, suggested Cult, my head of accounts was a very active Jehovah's Witness, and I was a very active LDS member. And both religions have a lot of negative connotations and accusations about being creepy cults. And so we really had to wrestle with, is that, in a, is that a metaphor and association that we're comfortable with? And the, the reality is, is whether you look at, and Douglas Atkin from Airbnb was really the genesis of this. He wrote a book in the early 2000s called The Culting of Brands, but he was really the first to connect the dots between really desirable organizations, the Marine Corps, sports teams, fraternities, religions, right? uh, uh, and then certainly commercial enterprises like Harley-Davidson or, or Converse. And so um, I think if you can suspend your initial reaction that cults are all bad and instead be marveled at how they how do they form and how intelligent people join them and how do they grow without paid media, uh, there's actually a lot of interesting parallels that I think the business community can benefit from. Well, again, I, you know, I, I've been in the agency business a long time too. You know, that's where I came from, and I think it's just an exercise in marketing. Like, it's just how are you going to design a brand to let the world know exactly who you're for and exactly who you're not for. And I don't see it any different than courageous. You know, my phone doesn't ring for someone looking for iterative ideas. It's not, nobody's calling me for like the safe approach. Usually I'm being called because there's a courageous leadership problem. There's a courageous ideas problem. There's a, co a company that is stuck or they're scared or they're spinning. and. And I don't get the other calls now, and I think that's by design. And I like the fact that you're putting a point of view in the world. And the other thing that I really liked that I saw from you guys was that line about helping brands achieve a rational customer loyalty. And it, it takes courage to say that. I think a lot of us believe it. We don't put it in literature because we're afraid we're going to alienate 50% of possible clients that you probably shouldn't be working with anyway. So I love that you're, you're putting that out into the world. Yeah, it was, you know, when we were an ad agency, 
there was a lot of safety or maybe I should say a, a false sense of security in this idea of we could do really anything for anyone. Everybody needed some form of an ad, a website, a mobile app, a, a commercial, a sign, whatever it might be. And so, it, you know, that, that created a sea of sameness that created a lot of disenfranchisement in terms of what I woke up doing every day, but at least I had, you know, uh, a, a bait on the hook and a giant ocean full of fish that I knew I could get some meat. When we became a cult brand, we initially started incredibly narrow saying that we're only going to work with cult brands. And we identified about 500. Now 500 is better than 50. And I think you can be too niche, but 500 is a far cry from hundreds of thousands. And so it was really quite scary to say that these are the only kinds of businesses that are cult worthy or cult capable. Uh, we've since ex expanded it to, as we've gotten to know cult brands better, I actually am more energized, not by cult brands, but by the brands that aspire to be cult-like and they don't know how. And that's actually why I'm so attracted to your proposition, Ryan, is I was under the false assumption that they don't know how, so I just need to teach them. And we would write the books and we would do social, we'd give speeches and we'd do all this stuff saying, here's how, here's the eight specific things that cult brands do. And yet that wasn't the barrier. The barrier was they lacked the courage, the intestinal fortitude, sometimes the ambition to do it. And, and now the metaphor I use is like weight loss. Like nobody doesn't know how to lose weight. And yet 50% of Americans are overweight, not because of a lack of knowledge, but because of lack of a willingness to do the hard things that are required to stay in shape. You mentioned that you just came from the Peloton, right? Like there's probably something you would have rather done for that 30 or 60 minutes, but you understood that that's, if I want this desired result, I've got to put in the work. And that's a harder sell for us. We're not selling quick weight loss pills. We're selling, you have to be at the gym every morning at 6 a.m. And a lot of brands don't want that answer. Yeah, there's a consistency to it, and the the you know I appreciate your commentary on uh, on our brand, and yeah, I also think the problem is like, let you know you're the fearless leader of your business. You know this. Like, let's say you actually have courage. What about everybody else? Like, it's courage to me. It's it's it needs to be a team game, and that's the hard part. Is that we're all overwhelmed, we're all time starved, we're all trying to get through it. We're all now living in these little Zoom boxes, and now you're going to tell me, wait a minute, we got to slow down, bring everybody together. Uh, one of the value props we found ourselves saying on the consulting side of our business, it's like, what business are we really in? The clarity business the belief business and the forums for hard conversations business. And that last one, like you don't get to do be a cult brand if you don't have everybody on the same page. And sometimes it's like, okay, what's that thing you're afraid to share that you know is hindering the success of this team. And so we're now being hired to be like, all right, let's have, like we're a permission slip for the hard conversation. And then let us get out of the way so you can go do the things you need to do. Are you are you seeing some of that in your business? Well, I mean, this idea of the hard conversation, what I like, and even something as provocative as our name call, I like to tell what I had to tell the staff when there was some angst about that, you know, this is 10 years ago, was that listen, 
cult is going to be the least provocative or difficult thing that we do. And so that, that itself is going to be a, a, a bit of a filter. If people aren't going to work with us because of the name, they're never going to want to work with us because of the recommendations uh, that we ask them to do. And we try to be very overt up front about the road ahead, right? And I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that being a cult brand is going to take years versus advertising and mass media can, can kind of take weeks or months. I think there's examples of immediate success in both instances. It really has more to do with what I consider the sustainability of it. What are you going to try to do, not year one or two, but 10 years from now or 20 years from now? What do you want this business to accomplish? Is it a vehicle for other things besides profit? And when you're talking with a founder, I think it's a much easier conversation. When you're talking with a C-suite that's inherited the business, maybe they're two or three leaderships you know, away from the founder, then it gets tougher and tougher because they, they lack the original origin story of what that business was set out to accomplish in the first place. I want to go back to uncracking this line though, of helping brands achieve irrational customer loyalty. And you let me know if that's still like a primary part of the business or if that's sort of like, you know, sometimes there's some, some debris that lands in LinkedIn that needs to be updated, but I, there's so much in here that I, I like, and I'm curious about, you know, on the, the irrational side, I, I find myself saying rational tells irrational sells. You know, like we are rational. We'd like to see ourselves, especially when we go to work, the corporate version of ourselves. And when we used to have commutes, it happens somewhere on the commute that the for you, it might be the BYU loving, can't wait to be at the gym from 10 right, to 2 a.m. Irrational, right? But then like there's some imaginary line where the rat, you think you have to be this corporate rational human being that's perfect in every way as you show up to work with the data. Like, why does that happen? And then how do we help people sort of see like, no, 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 no. Like leave that dude behind and go back to the, the dude that wishes they could spend every waking moment in the gym. That's the irrational person. That's where the smiles come from. Why is that so hard for us? You know, I do think that we, again, some of it comes down to role models. I think that we try to get into character too often to try to become somebody else uh, that maybe is a cheat. You know, from, there's a whole generation of C-suite executives that had Jack Welsh as their role model. And he was a certain type of CEO, right? And uh, he was, that, that whole genre of shareholder value generated a certain sort of Wall Street-led business that the Harvard Business Review has now completely debunked and said that might go down as one of the worst paradigms driving business, but that was the paradigm we're in. We're actually in a new paradigm now coming through COVID, and it was really COVID and the one-two punch of COVID and I think the George Floyd murders and, and this elevated sense of DE&I and and privilege and inclusion. And uh, I, I just read a thing this week that said the new number one leadership attribute, which used to be either vision or communication or charisma, it's now EQ and empathy. And so like the Brene Browns of the world, there's this groundswell of, of a new day. And I think it's great. We're kind of in the early stages of it. But the other thing is, is I mean, when we say irrational, we could also just say highly emotional. 
sometimes when we get really emotional, we act irrationally, but emotions are a human real thing. Uh, a great way to see it manifest is to watch a spouse stereotypically, typically a, a male telling his wife why he bought a Porsche. Like there is no rational reason why you need a Porsche. It's all emotional. It's all irrational. And yet we somehow dismiss that. We somehow think I got one because I want one or because I'm having a midlife crisis and it makes me feel sexy again. Or we somehow think that those aren't valid reasons. And we have to start talking about resale value and we have to start talking about safety or price or fuel consumption or whatever it might be. And it's like, no, let's just allow humans to be humans. And I think the best cult brands not only understand that, they exploit it. I mean, Nike is such a great example, right? And they know that most people are not professional athletes, but they paint a picture in my mind that says, if I pay those $200 for those sneakers, I am going to be better on the basketball court. I know it's, ir- I mean, I know it's really not true, but I kind of, there's a part of me that wants it to be true. And if I look the part, I'll act the part. And so there's not enough marketers are playing with emotion and irrationality to their advantage. You know, let's talk, let's talk the other half of that line, which is about brand loyalty, you know, and, and the metaphor that, you know, I think I'm fluent in metaphors. So you got to forgive me. You know, I'm, I'm speak, speaking metaphor all the time. Uh, brand loyalty, man, it, it's, it is hard out there. I mean, from what I'm seeing, it's hard out there. And I do think to your point, if you haven't achieved cult status, it's, it's really hard. And I, the metaphor I, I, I look at is kind of like the real estate business. Like there's nothing more that a brand wants than for you to be a buyer, right? Like lock you into a 30 year relationship and consistent dose of compensation coming back. Right. But like, I think sadly today people are renting brands. I don't, I don't think we're buyers. I think we rent brands and we're around for a little bit, but if you treat me poorly, like back then you could pull that stuff the way it was. And now you treat me poorly. I'm breaking this lease. I'm going to go find myself another tenant. Are you feeling this shift too? So, uh, well, 100%, but I think it's, it's a chicken or egg, right? Like people like to blame the promiscuity of the buyer. Though consumers have just become so disloyal. And what's really happened is businesses have not given consumers a reason to be loyal. There's way too much parity. There's way too much choice. If any bur- I went to a, a brand new burger joint last night, right? And I thought to myself, this place is delightful. This might even be my new favorite burger joint here in town. But I have a dozen other options that also have pretty good burgers. And if this place was to go out of business, I wouldn't pick it outside and and champion for them because I just have another one right down the road. So I feel like in first world countries, we have an embarrassment of choice and option, which is what's created the, the race to the bottom. And I think cult brands have simply said, I have to invent another reason for people to give a damn about me that isn't tied to being the cheapest or the most convenient. And we're fascinated by that because I don't think price or convenience should be the number one reason why people will win because there's only a few winners in that game. And it's people that can strip all costs out of the business like Amazon and Walmart or people that can be on every street corner like you know Subway or 7-Eleven. That's too small of a universe. And cult brands find ways to get people to pay more money and to inconvenience themselves to shop their brand and that's where I'm like, how did they do that? That that's that to me is marketing mastery. Yeah, and again, I love that you talked about um, 
looking under the hood and, and someone once said to me uh, in an interview for my for my first book about are you sure it's return on courage or is return on curiosity <laughs> and uh, it was like hey you know, it's really good thought really good question and you know you think about how curious one needs to be to look constantly look under the hood and hear what's not being said uh, and it sounds like you know the more you do that the more the insights show up and the more that it guides your business Let's talk about the gathering for a little bit, because you guys have done such an amazing job of getting just this caliber of speaker. Um, and usually, obviously, you were it's up in BAM. Um, again, taking the ASO talk, I, I had an awesome conversation with with Jason White, who's now the CMO of MTV Backstage. I know Bozema was there, and like I said, I got to talk to Brad Foster as well as President Colt. How are you like pulling? this caliber of speaker? Why do you feel, because for me, it seems to perfectly mirror cult, right? Like there's desirability. People want to speak there. People want to inspire. People want to give back. Talk me through one, how you go about getting speakers for that. And you kind of mentioned um, you were studying the future trends of like leadership and that EQ popped up. I'm really curious also, so this is a one-two punch of like the themes. What do the themes look like as you think through the type of, of, of speaker you want for future gatherings? So the first question is a two-part answer because the year one of the gathering was such an audacious idea that I was a bit skeptical. And I really have to give my business partner credit. Ryan is much more, you know, I used to use the word fearless and I don't really like that word much anymore because I think if the goal is to be fearless, you avoid situations where fear is present and that's bad. In fact, I used to sign our book, Be Fearless, and now I sign it, Be Courageous, uh, because I think that being in fearful situations is actually a good thing. You shouldn't run from that, but you need to overcome that fear. And, and Ryan um, just had the audacity to ask, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I remember, I remember, the, the, I mean, we had amazing speakers all the way back in year one. Um, we had a few aces up our sleeve. We were working with Harley Davidson, so we knew we could get Harley there. And I think we had a relationship. I can't remember who's year one. We had maybe with like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders or something like that, a great CFL team here in Canada. Um, but like everybody else, Red Bull, Las Vegas, like those were cold calls from Ryan to a brand leader painting a picture about what we were trying to accomplish and to their credit and to his credit, they, they said that we would participate. I remember one time, maybe two or three years in, we wanted to get Brene Brown and Brene Brown was charging hundred thousand dollars a speech and we don't pay our speakers. And Ryan was like, I want Brene Brown there. And I'm like, yeah. And I want Obama there. I mean, like, are we dreaming about who's not coming or are we having a real conversation? And he calls her and he shares what we're doing. And um, I'm sure there was some luck and some timing about she had a book coming out and she was trying to become more of a B2B uh, practitioner, not just B2C. So, you know, the stars aligned, but the short answer was a big idea and the courage or the balls to pull it off. Since then, it's gotten easier because great brands beget great brands. And, you know, so if Jason White come, when we first met Jason, he was with Beats by Dre. 
right? And then Beats by Dre, you know, his just community is other people saying, what was that? That looked awesome. And, you know, our job was to put on a good show. And then their job is to just like all good cults, it grows by word of mouth. Yeah, I have to be careful not to soapbox here, but our our logics are so aligned, which I really do appreciate. You know, I I am not a fan of the word fearless either, for the record. I actually like like fear less. No, how about fear more? Like I actually like fear more and like like it's sort of Jedi, right? Like don't like let's let's know what we should be fearing and then go after it and shrink down that fear until you find the next big fear. And, and I, I just love that Ryan also had sort of the, it's sort of part curiosity, part courage to make the call and say, this is, this is the dream. And same thing with, 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 with my book, it was a lot of like, honestly, like a lot of cold outreach. And then I had enough of a background that if you looked at me, you saw I wasn't some crazy person and the word just really resonated with with specific leaders i wasn't paying them they weren't you know they weren't clients and they just they just there was just something about the word that emotionally triggered them the right way that got us going off off of those conversations so even today like you know when you think about the themes like this is the best part of the idea business by the way right like here we are today it's in november of 21 and like i'm working on an idea that's going to be thrown into the future and people don't think about it this way but like time goes on and you're throwing an idea that you hope lands with the themes of tomorrow so in your opinion like what are those themes that you're looking for for your speakers um you know, we spend a lot of time, the cult brand principles have been baked and codified now for nine years. So we wonder how, how, how long in the tooth is it going to get if we just keep coming back and beating people over the head with the same uh, eight principles. Um, but then we take somebody like, take a Simon Sinek that, you know, one of the eight principles deals with brand purpose. And Simon has created a very successful multi-million dollar you know, business just on that one principle, right? So we do wonder sometimes, should we go broad or should we go deep? And, and you know, I, I like to think about depth as sort of like the, uh, the, the, the closet in Narnia, right? Like you think you're going to run out of stuff to talk about and then you open that door and there's a whole world out there. I mean, you've probably seen that with courage. I mean, courage is one aspect of behavior that you could devote the rest of your life to, right? I mean, it's so nuanced and how to do it and, and, and demonstrations of it and et cetera. So um, I do, uh, I, we, the, the thing that's most fascinating to me, and you know, when I, I graduated in 99 and marketing was bedfellows with IT, it was a world of how is IT how are businesses going to become digitized, whether it's building their first dot-com site, whether it was big data, CRM, loyalty programs, point of sale. Then you had social media. Then you had mobile devices. Like technology has dominated the mind of the marketer for 20 years. But what we're now seeing is that the more interesting bedfellow is HR and the role of culture, the role of internal engagement, this war for talent that we're now seeing. I was talking to a CEO earlier in the week who said, my biggest inhibitor to growth is I have 800 unfilled positions. 
So marketing should step up. HR doesn't know how to fix that. No offense to HR professionals, but they're like, they're like the legal department. They're about risk mitigation and benefits administration and union negotiation. Marketing knows how to persuade, how to influence, how to inspire, how to communicate. They have tools. And frankly, they have a whole bunch of non-attributable budget that nobody can with a straight face say that we're spending wisely because of the, the reckless overuse of paid media. So I'm really interested in finding ways for leaders to think differently about employer branding, recruitment, retention, uh, and, and how we use culture as a competitive advantage to fuel business growth. Uh, I mean, to me, that is that is it right there. I mean, and, and I kind of feel, I don't know if you feel this way, because we both, we basically graduated at the same time. And like every skill I learned from my crazy madman mentors along the way, to even run an agencies up till two years ago prepared me to like, oh, this is the problem. The problem is that brands that are failing continue to put stories out into the world that aren't authentic to what's happening behind the curtain at their own company. And marketers, you know, tough time to be a marketer because every decision they're making is being watched and it's almost so transactional at poor companies where the CEO's like, where are the customers? Go find his customers. How much does it cost to acquire a customer? And no attention is being given on like, well, hold on, have we, have we even like properly told the story of our company? Because if we get it right on the inside, we'll get it right to the outside. And, and do you even have products and services that are uniquely desirable and distinctive? You know, I love that anecdote about Steve Jobs coming back to Apple and just uh, priding himself on what he said no to more than what he said yes to, streamlining the portfolio. Uh, you know, it's not always about more, right? It's got to be about better. Uh, and I also think, you know, uh, we're also kind of fascinated about just even organizational structure. There's, a, there's sort of this rise of the, the chief experience officer. And I think that that's a unfortunate reality because it means that marketing failed. Marketing should have been the experience officer, but they got so distracted with channels. And when we look at org structures, we don't see customer segment managers. We see channel manager. Oh, I'm the CRM guy. I'm the social person. I'm the PR person. I'm the e-commerce person. It's like, we're just in the business of optimizing channels. We should be in the business of maximizing customers. And that includes what products and services do they want that we're not yet providing. No marketer today is actively involved in product development. That's been delegated to some other organization and department. Marketing is, hey, I've built this thing or I've bought this thing. Go find a way to sell it. Go find somebody to buy it, make it look sexy, make pretend like it does something that it doesn't do. And I'm talking in hyperbole, of course, but I get very frustrated because I really love marketing. I actually think marketing is the most important thing that a company can do. And I get sad that in most organizations, they're the least valued member of the C-suite. And I think that that's self-inflicted. I think we need to fix that ourselves. Well, I think that's a good opportunity for those who see it differently. And to your point, uh, you know, I, this conveyor belt of business, it, like marketing is waiting for the the product to come around the, the, the corner. Like we're like the last line of defense. And I think that's the problem, right? Like the, 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 the marketer should not be at the end of the conveyor belt. They need to be probably in the middle or near the beginning, and they can actually bake into the product those little moments that are actually desirable or create irrational experiences uh, with, with, their, with their customers. Um, 
Look, you know, we're coming down the home stretch here. I think it's like really clear to even like see where you've been courageous in your business life. But I, I would love if you don't mind, can you share a personal story of where you were courageous? Yeah, I mean, if I think back at the most courageous thing I did, which was I had a very good job. Uh, leading the retail practice of an Omnicom agency in Dallas, where I had grown up and was happy and um, had an opportunity presented to me to take over a shop in, in Calgary, Alberta. And it was so bizarre. It couldn't help but be intrigued by it. Um, and uh, I remember one of my mentors telling me that if you want to have an exceptional life, you have to make some exceptional choices meaning it's just not going to naturally and organically come to pass. You're going to have to, to, you know, stick your neck out and do some things. And so quitting my job and relocating my family to another country. Um, and people might say, yeah, it's Canada. It's not like Iran or the Philippines, but believe me, it, it was, I made the mistake of the first couple of years pretending or thinking that Canada was like America. The differences are substantial. It's actually much more like Europe than it is America. Um, and the learning curve was pretty uh, intense. But now, now that I've just recently moved back to the States and our business has achieved a level of success and we've birthed some other things that we're quite excited about in the gathering and Camino, I, I look back with just 2020 hindsight of the best thing I ever did. It was good for my uh, kids. It was good for my uh, personal relationships and it was great for my professional, uh, you know, success. Every once in a while, I get to sort of play around with the, the, the bit being a business guy and a creative guy and, and, and sort of bringing those worlds together. I love playing in the middle and uh, I'll, I'll write business haikus. <laughs> and so I've got I've got a few business haikus I want to run by you and All right. just get your take and and, uh, and so I've got three for you. Just would love to get your visceral responses. So the and the first one is, and again for those of you at home, the haiku is the old five seven five on the syllables here. So business haiku number one is make me leave my house, move or lose me forever, make me feel something. Yeah, well, so that feel part to me is just another way of talking about irrational. I don't want, somebody once said, speak to the heart and let the heart convince the brain. Uh, that is, I think, marketing done best. And that is this idea of, uh, of feeling. And then particularly this idea of make me leave the house, right? I mean, that is the world that we live in now. I'm a huge movie fan. I'm actually one of the few guys that still goes to the theater because I just like the experience. But I th I'm like, they've got to step up and it can no longer be overpriced popcorn and, and, you know, and, and bad seats. And they are, they're putting in, get your seats, you know, a reservation system, pick your seat in advance, the recliner, better food choices, and maybe an alcoholic beverage if you want one. Like I, I like the way that they're giving me an excuse to not just watch this in my bedroom. That's a nice segue to the second one. Ready? And then it's not where you think we're going, but the opposite of leaving your house. All right, so here we go. Amazon, you beast. We love you while we fear you. Taking bank from all. <laughs> Taking bank. Uh, is that versus cash? You, you I could have gone cash. Bank is more know. gangster. I don't know. Yeah, it um, sounds more, yeah. You know, here's the one thing about Amazon. As a guy that literally last night had to go to a dumpster to drop off nine cardboard boxes, 
they've got to, nothing is, I mean, Amazon is so remarkable in so many ways. We actually honored them at the gathering last year. Um, Prime is the only, well, not the only, one of the few loyalty programs I think that gets it right. Um, and they charge for it, which is ironic. Um, but I do marvel at the carbon footprint and the inefficiency with which four different drivers have to come to drop off one thing. I feel like I would sacrifice a day of delivery for the good of the planet to say everybody consolidate my orders into one box somehow. And I'm sure there's a hundred logistical reasons why that's not possible, but they're, they're going to be victims of their own success, whether it's, um, I was also listening to a, a docu-series on the, the Austin city bomber and thinking about, you know, just the terror of all these boxes on people's doorsteps and people starting to take advantage of this. So um, we, we as a society have to catch up to what is the reality of what if we never leave our house? What if everything is going to be dropped off on our doorstep or at some pickup location? And how do we uh, imp- improve security uh, as those are, are you know, theft and, and terrorism and whatnot are obviously legitimate threats. And Anyway, yes, I'm an Amazon fan, uh, and I think that they were a good – a lot of people like to hate on Amazon. I think they do have some culture issues to get correct. I'm not a fan of what Jeff Bezos did going to the moon. I think that that was an inappropriate distraction from uh, what could have been a bigger deep dive into becoming one of the most beloved CEOs of one of the most important businesses of our lifetime. Yeah, um, you know, and, and again, I was just thinking, like, if we if we never leave our houses, by the way, you better start working on building your your movie theater at your house because it's just <laughs> yeah. not the same, right? Uh, which leads us to the last, the third and final haiku: uh, rational story, perfectly on strategy, nothing moves me less. <laughs> Yeah, well, th- listen, that's a good one. And, and I don't know if were you a creative director or an art director in your past life? Or yeah, I was a great creative guy. Of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that particularly and I saw a stat the other day that said 74 percent of Fortune 1000 firms now have in-house agencies. And I do get worried that we've now prioritized efficient over effective and some of the pushback that a great creative director can bring into a story to say, you know, we're going to talk nothing about no rational features or benefits, right? It's going to be completely random or irrational, I think is a great way to break through the clutter. And I do worry that the, that storytelling is in jeopardy of just becoming, you know, boring, frankly. Yeah. Nobody wants a boring story. <laughs> um, look, loved having you on the show. I'm, I'm glad we finally got a chance to like, have a real conversation from us LinkedIn. And, you know, I've, I've enjoyed using whatever was the appropriate emoji to like your, your, your content and your commentary. And I, and I appreciate when you've done that back to me, any final words of wisdom for the, for the, the audience. Um, Two thoughts. First, let's do this again. And we don't have to be on mics and cameras to do it. We should just get to know each other more and more because I think, um, if I have the playbook, you have the tools to get people properly inspired and motivated to do it. And so that one-two punch, I think, is is the right uh, combination. And the way you've articulated it and codified it, uh, I really, 
I just stopped taking notes during your gathering speech saying, I just have to ask this guy for his slides. Cause I was stopping every, you know, 30 seconds and say, I got to write this down. And you know, I'm a huge fan of your idea of, the, of a pack of lions. And that, that implies a degree of teamwork, sometimes courage. Well, think of my own example of my, my business partner. When I was less courageous, I relied on his, there's been times where he's less courageous. He relies on me. So doing things together can sometimes create the courage that's necessary. We don't have to always shoulder it on our own. Uh, so for your own listeners, who I'm sure are already fans of yours, I hope that they convert into paying customers and utilize your services and subscribe to your content because uh, I'm spending all my days in boardrooms of the best brands in the world and I'm learning things from Ryan that they need to hear. So it's very, very topical. Well, thanks, Chris. I look forward to seeing you in a gym. We'll both yeah. be wearing Nikes. That's what we need to do. That's, That's what, what we'll do. do. We'll, we'll, find, we'll find a spot. Chris Nealon, thanks, man. Appreciate it.